it's in my office. Praise God. Here we go. Mark chapter 6. Praise God. This, this morning as we continue along. In, 19, in uh, 1843, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Hans Christian Andersen uh, wrote a little story that you may be familiar with. Uh, it's really transcend the generations. It's one that uh, probably your children read or your children's children, uh, perhaps one that you remember fondly reading together. But uh, it's the story of the ugly duckling. Uh, you remember that story, uh, the ugly duckling, that, that little swan who thought that he was uh, an ugly duckling and, and how he grew up and thinking that he was ugly all along and, and how nobody wanted him. But but that moment that he looked into the, the, the waters, remember, he, he saw his reflection for the first time. He, he saw who he really was, and, and he had just a smiling face, and, and he recognized his beauty and wonder. Um, friends, that's kind of what we're going to encounter this morning. Uh, Jesus, if you will, and, and I use this very loosely and liberally, uh, Jesus, if you will, to the people around him was an ugly duckling. Um, he didn't fit in with the people around him in the sense that when Jesus started his ministry, uh, people who knew him best really could not come to understand that this was who he claimed to be. That, that as Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, born of God, uh, it, it, people struggled with that. They wrestled with that. And they had a difficult time. And that's where we've come this morning in Mark's gospel. And uh, friends, I just want to remind you that if you haven't been with us uh, over the last few uh, months as we've been making our way, uh, the gospel of Mark was actually written to Christians. Um, I know it's surprising as a Christian. You you say, well, I thought the gospels were written to non-Christians to help them understand who Jesus was. Well, in fact, Mark wrote his this gospel, the, this account, to Christians in Rome. Um, you may wonder, well, well, why would I come to such a conclusion? Why would we come? It's not my conclusion solely, but, but scholars believe if you were to read through Gospel of Mark and you would kind of read sections. For example, last week, and I didn't highlight this because I didn't want to be, want you to get you distracted by it. But last week, you remember in the, uh, Jesus, when he confronted the, the demoniac there, uh, in the garrisons, uh, he said that, that, uh, we are legion, right? That word legion is a uh, Latin word uh, that a Roman would have understood and heard, right? So, so it's kind of a clue uh, that gives us a clue that, hey, Mark is using language that an everyday Roman would have understood. An everyday Gentile would have heard and said, hey, you know, that, that, that rings a little particular special to my ears. You know, particularly when you think about uh, the Gospels and Jesus' ministry really being born into a culture that is very distant than even our own as it would have been for the Romans uh, you know, living in Rome, it would have been very difficult for them uh, to understand some of the customs and some of the ceremonial uh, type of activities that Jesus and his disciples were a part of. And so you'll find often in the Gospels there's some, explan- some, some uh, explanations of what's going on. Uh, John does this well in his gospel. He pretty much assumes you don't know anything about Jewish tradition, and so he uh, he informs you a lot. And Mark does the same thing. And so um, when we consider then this morning Mark's gospel in chapter 6, in verse 1, so I just invite you to turn there. Um, if you're not familiar with reading the Bible, uh, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers, those are the first numbers. And uh, we've provided pews and, uh, pew Bibles in front of you. That's page 841. If you're not uh, familiar 
uh, with finding books of the Bible. That's okay. Um, encourage you to turn there and hear God's word this morning. Mark chapter chapter six and verse one. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. But to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. What we see here is a message to Christians, encouraging them really in two ways. What we want to see this morning is really two main points, and we'll just kind of flesh out those two points as we think about the text. First, as Christians, we should expect pervasive unbelief. As Christians, we should expect people to be pervasive and persistent in their unbelief shouldn't surprise us. Secondly, in the midst of pervasive and persistent unbelief, the urgency of the Christian mission demands that we press on. We see in this passage that in the midst of unbelief, Jesus, in in a very urgent manner, urges and pushes his disciples to continue the mission. So let's consider first that we should expect persistent and pervasive unbelief. We're told by Mark that Jesus is traveling uh, with his disciples. And let me remind you that over, really since chapter 2, Jesus has been traveling through Galilee. He's been uh, really centered his home base there in Capernaum, not but a few miles from his hometown. And so naturally, we have seen that his hometown, his family's relatives, uh, have heard about Jesus's ministry. Uh, sometimes, I just want to make a note, our familiarity with Jesus sometimes takes away the shock and awe of what's happening uh, in the story. Uh, we forget what it was like to first hear what Jesus was doing. 
And so I want you to just turn back in your Bible, just one, one page back, one page back, back to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, uh, in verse 20, we see kind of what was happening to Jesus in his early days in ministry. Uh, then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Right? And so, so Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. He's like, Jesus, what are you saying? What are you doing? What is going on? Uh, do you, what? I don't know. We don't understand. Jesus, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Right? And so it's in this context, Jesus has been serving and ministering to people in and around his hometown. There in Capernaum, which isn't his hometown, it's where his home base was, uh, he's been ministering and serving uh, the communities around. And he's been going into the synagogues and preaching and teaching. And so what we see in verse 1 is really Jesus kind of doing the same thing. Hometown was really uh, no different for him than any other town. Jesus went to his hometown, we're told, and his disciples followed him. And Jesus goes into the synagogue and begins to teach. Now, Matthew and Luke kind of record for us a little bit more information about what Jesus said and did. But for Mark, he's very laser focused. One of the things you want to remember about Mark is Mark is trying to tell a story in a quick fashion. Mark is trying to get to the cross. And if you ever just maybe this afternoon, a little project, maybe your husband or wife, you guys can just open up the book of Mark and look at how quickly he gets through Jesus's life. Like he's got his life on fast forward. And then he presses slow-mo when he gets to the triumphal entry. When you get to the triumphal entry in chapter 11, what happens is the last week of Jesus' life is like in slow-mo for Mark. He just takes it slowly and focuses in on who Jesus is. And so right now we're kind of in the fast forward motion. And, and, and so we don't have a lot of detail, but we have just enough to help us understand what's going on in Jesus' life. And so Jesus goes, as was his custom, into the synagogue and begins to teach. He begins to share the message of the kingdom of God. He begins to, to, to share the same message he shared with every single community that he had been in. He shares the same message. That is, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe that I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the Christ who is who was foretold in the Old Testament, I am him. Believe in me, and you will receive forgiveness of sins. So he goes home and begins to tell that in his hometown. And quite naturally, the people react in really ways that I think we, you and I would have reacted. So Jesus, the, the small town kid, the, the, home, the, the, you know, the homebody, the one who grew up, uh, most scholars believe, uh, through the witness of the uh, gospels that Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30 years old or thereabout. And then he ministered for three years and died when he was 33 and then rose again. Um, so Jesus lived in Nazareth for 30 years. You know, I'm only 32. So, I mean, I mean, if you're old, you can imagine how when you've lived in a community for just 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or, or maybe for some of you, you've lived in this community for, 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 for much longer, right? You kind of know your way around town. And, and Nazareth, most believe, was a population of about 500. I mean, 500 people. There's churches larger than that, right? I mean, 500 people. Jesus would have been known by the people in town. 
Not only would he have been known because he had lived there for 30 years, but we're told as a testimony to who Jesus was and his humanity in chapter, in chapter 6, right here, where we're at, where we just were, in verse, um, verse 3, he, he says, Is not this the carpenter? So not only would Jesus' age of being living there for 30 years had made him known, his occupation would have made him known as well. He was a carpenter. Now, I don't want to hurt you here, but most believe that Jesus didn't work primarily with wood. Uh, his primary occupation was most likely a stone builder because there wasn't a lot of wood in that region. Uh, but he would have worked with wood. He would have probably been more of your handyman kind of guy. He would have kind of done everything. He would have been, you know, working on yokes with the animals, repairing those, uh, doing some stonework, uh, whether that be chiseling stone or, or, or building buildings, maybe small type projects. He would have been the local handyman. As is the case, they identify him as the carpenter. Like, hey, we know this guy. We've seen this guy in town. Uh, we recognize his handiwork. He has been in my home or he's been in my aunt's home and He's worked on my mom's home the other day and fixed the roof. You know, uh, Jesus was known by the people in his town. And so naturally, when you grow up with somebody and you find that their occupation changes, you kind of take notice. Now, for us as Americans, uh, in living in Western society, if you're not American, if you're in a Western society, uh, you'll recognize that it is easy... Um, it's not impossible, perhaps not easy, that's probably not the best word, but it is not impossible for you to transcend your social class in which you were born into. So if you were born into a lower class society here in America, it's not unheard of, in fact it's celebrated, when you can transcend your social class and move up the ladder into high society, right? It's not unheard of for the middle class to, through business venture, investment, or so on and so forth, so many different things, move up the social, the social ladder. Well, in this culture in the Bible, that was near impossible. It was unheard of for you to do anything other than what your dad did. What your mom was. It, it just, it was really unheard of for someone born to a carpenter, to be anything but a carpenter. This is what she did. It was actually offensive. And so if you ever get a chance to meet anyone from non-Western society, like uh, uh, someone from an Asian community, right? So Korean community, for example. Um, it is a very difficult thing within a Korean context for you to transcend outside of or get outside of what your family practice and business is. You do what dad says. You do what mom and dad say. It just, it's just second nature. And so what, what the kids do is they come to America where they can kind of not do what mom and dad say and get a better life. I encourage you to talk to some of them and, and see the stark difference in the life that you've kind of been accustomed to and what it's like in other cultures. And, and in this particular culture, it would have just been unheard of for Jesus to be doing what he was doing. People just didn't go out on their own. And so we see that it's quite natural for them to be, as verse 2 says, astonished at what he's saying. Jesus is saying some pretty radical things. Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, I mean, you can't get much more radical in a Jewish context than to go around and say, hey, by the way, 
I'm who the Bible says is the Messiah. I'm God. Believe in me. Worship me, in fact. It's radical in what Jesus is saying. And so naturally, we see them. Look at the five questions they ask. Where did this man get these things? Notice the, the degrading comment here, that man over there. That man get that. Who does he think he is? You can hear it in the sense they don't call him by name. And say, hey, where did Jesus get these things? This is fascinating. Where did he get these? They say, that man over there, who do you think you are? Who do you think you Where Where, where did he get this? This, these things. Where, where did he get his wisdom, his education from? We know him. He never went to rabbinical school. He never was trained. Who, who does he think? He's going to teach me about my relationship with God? Who does this fellow think he is? How, how is he doing these mighty works? That's a question we've heard already asked in the Gospels. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, hey, how are you doing these things? Oh, we know how you're doing these things. You're doing these things by the devil. Satan, that's how you're doing these things. Satan has possessed you, and you're, you're on Satan's side. That's how you're able to do these things. And Jesus confronts them and says, you, you guys are silly. You guys are silly. And so we see here they're confronted. This is what they're saying. Jesus, we hear what you're saying, and we see what you're doing. They were not blinded to the reality of who Jesus was. They are like in chapter 4 where Jesus says that the people hear but they cannot hear. They see but they cannot perceive. Their hearts were so hardened in their unbelief that Jesus of Nazareth stood before their face and they didn't get it. Friends, this is scary. This is frightening as you think that those closest to Jesus couldn't even see it. And it's a reminder that proximity to Jesus doesn't save. Just because you're here this morning doesn't mean you're saved. Proximity to Jesus and his people does not guarantee salvation. It is only, as we'll see in a moment, through repentance and faith that one is saved. Proximity does not save. If you want to read more about this, I encourage you to read John chapter 7. In John 7, we see Jesus' encounter with his brothers and their just stark unbelief. And, and Jesus, I mean, they are just so confused about who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. I just encourage you to read that and, and see more of what Jesus dealt with. So they go on. They say, hey, Jesus, we know who you are. I mean, you're the carpenter. You're the son of Mary. We, we know your mom, right? We know your brothers. We know your family. How, who do you, th- what? I, don't, I don't understand. So they reject him. They don't just reject him. Look at what Mark says in verse 3. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Jesus, we, we, we know what you're saying. We hear you. We see what you're doing. But we will not worship you. That's what they're saying. We hear you. We, we hear everything, but we cannot come to the point of worship. And Jesus is devastated. 
devastated. In fact, he marvels. Thaumadzo, he's amazed. He is shocked. The eternal God of the universe is amazed at the pervasiveness of human sin. In fact, I will go far to even to say, J.C. Ryle says this in his commentary on this. He says this, he says, God is not surprised as much at sin as he is at unbelief. Friends, you maybe have heard the story of Adam and Eve. They walked with God and yet doubted his word. The sin of unbelief is the core sin that every one of us face. It's the very foundation of sin, unbelief. Not believing God's word. In the garden, God said, if you eat of that tree over there, you're going to die. Adam and Eve believed the lie that Satan told them. Satan says, no, God wouldn't kill you. And they believed Satan, and they didn't believe God. They said, God, you're a liar. I'm not going to believe you. We hear what you're saying, God. We see what you can do, God. But we will not worship you. That's what they're saying. They, they didn't believe in the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel, what happened to them? God frees them through miraculous power. I mean, they walk through a, 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 a giant sea. And what do they do when they get on the other side? They doubt God. They don't believe God. They, the disbelief is the root of all sin. And so they do not believe. Their unbelief was shattering to God. In fact, Moses was so mad, he was like, you know, like, or excuse me, God was so mad, he's just like, I'm going to wipe everyone out. I'm just going to start over with you. Moses, Moses pled with him. No. Why? Because of their unbelief. They would not believe the promises of God. And so God sent them into the wilderness for 40 years. And then, then God forgave them and they went into the, to the nation and they got their own homeland and God said something to them. If you disobey me, you will be removed. And what did they do? They disobeyed. They disobeyed by not believing that God would actually punish them. That's what the prophets were saying. The prophets were like, oh, it's all good. Peace, peace, peace. Everything's good. God won't punish sin. And the reality was God will punish sin. In fact, he did punish the nation of Israel. He punished first the northern in 721, and then later in 586, he punished the Southern tribe. God punishes unbelief. He marvels at our ability to see His hand at work, yet not believe and doubt. That, that's the struggle that every one of us face in our own lives. And so Jesus marvels. He says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and his, his own household. He's like a politician who doesn't win the primary in his home state. Right? I mean, nothing gets as bad for a politician as not winning your hometown, right? I mean, that's just really bad, right? Or maybe winning your hometown and getting false hope that you're actually great, right? It can happen both ways, but, but we saw that last week. We saw a politician run and his own home state doesn't vote for him. I mean, devastating. But it doesn't stop Jesus, does it? Friends, I want, to see, I want you to see something in verse 6. He marvels at their unbelief. But notice verse 6, and he went out among the villages teaching. Unbelief won't stop Jesus in his ministry. 
even amidst some of the most devastating things in his life, his own friends and family turn their back. Jesus presses on to the mission. God is so great and glorious that human sin will not stop his hand to act. He works, even in spite of us, for his own glory. So we see then, firstly, that we as Christians should expect this. If Jesus endured unbelief, so we will endure unbelief in our lives. Both inwardly and outwardly among friends and family, co-workers, neighbors, our nation, community. We shouldn't be surprised at it, but we should not give up either. Jesus doesn't give up. He doesn't just throw, he's like, all right, you know, my family doesn't accept me, so, you know, it's all over with. I'm just going to go home. Let's go pack it up. No, he continues. Why? We see, secondly, why? Because of the urgency of the mission. Because of the urgency of the mission. Look with me at that set when he sends out the, the, the disciples. Verse 7, he calls the twelve and begins to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. In the preceding section, we saw Jesus' authority was rejected. Here we see Jesus' authority is shared. Jesus delegates to his apostles. He sends them out to go and to share the message which he has been sharing. Back up in verse 1, we see his disciples followed him. A reminder of what a disciple is. It's a follower of Jesus. Someone who's imitating and seeing how Jesus is acting and doing, and then doing that themselves. That's really what's been happening. Turn back with me to back to chapter 3. A few weeks ago, we considered this in verse 13. Jesus' call of his apostles in chapter 3 and verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. Just so you know, that word apostle is just the Greek word that means sent ones, being sent so I mean, you could have used that generally. You know, I sent my daughter to do something. Sent apostolos. But this is used. Jesus claims that word for himself. And he, and he calls them apostles. Those that have been sent by God on a mission. Notice what their mission is. So that they might be with him. So proximity. And he might send them out to preach. And have authority over to cast out demons. Have authority to cast out demons. And we see then in chapter 6 it being fulfilled. Chapter 3, being fulfilled, Jesus calls his apostles to him, his disciples. They've been walking with him. They've been hearing about the sower and the seed. They've been hearing about the parables. They've been listening to Jesus and watching him. They've heard by the campfires who Jesus is and how it was like to live there eternally before the throne of God as the second person of the Trinity. They know and they're hearing and now they're being sent out to go and proclaim the message by which Jesus has been sharing. That the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And so he sends them out. And what I want you to notice is the urgency by which he sends them. Look at verse 8. He tells them what to take. He says, Take nothing for your journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. It's urgency in this, isn't it? Don't pack a bag. Don't go home and, and, and think about it. Go as you are. Go as you are. 
Don't, don't prepare. Don't, you know, if you were to read, just, just kind of clear up if you're familiar with this passage, if you read Matthew and, and Luke, it's a little fuzzy uh, in the sense that they don't quite mesh perfectly. Uh, I think what is happening, if you go home today and read those, you'll see that Mark is just highlighting the fact that Jesus doesn't want them to be dependent upon anything but God alone. Right? That's what we see here. The urgency of their mission demands that they take nothing with them but the staff. Why a staff? Well, it was just culturally unheard of to like leave home without a staff. Just like, you know, maybe for you or your, I know especially for your kids, right? You don't leave home without your cell phone, right? You just don't do it, right? You can leave home with everything but your cell you know, right? Maybe you're like that. You ever been somewhere you don't have your phone with you and you feel like totally like disconnected from, I don't know. I do something. I'm like, ah. So, um, so don't leave without a staff. And notice then no provisions, no bread, no bag, no, no money in the belt, right? That was just, you know, no money in the wallet. Don't take any extra provisions with you. And don't bring an extra shirt, right? Uh, wear, wear your sandals. Wear the sandals that you got. Don't go buy new sandals. Don't go out to the sandal store and buy new ones. Um, and don't wear two shirts. The custom was to wear two shirts, take off one, have a clean one. Makes sense. Jesus says, no, I want you to depend entirely upon God in this mission. The urgency demands it. Don't make any preparation. Friends, this is easy to illustrate. If you've ever gone anywhere on vacation, uh, you understand the demands of packing, right? Or perhaps overpacking, right? We overpack because why? Oh, we don't know. I mean, this could happen or that could, I mean, it could be cold. It could be warm. You know, there's just all of these. And I know I'm talking to the ladies here, right? Guys are like, ah, man, I know. I get on them all the time. Uh, you know, there's over, why? Well, we want to be overly prepared for what's ahead. We don't know the, the unknown, right? But Jesus says, don't worry about the unknown. God's going to provide. It's glorious to see the urgency of the mission says do not provide, seek God. I just want to make a note. I think this passage too has been overly applied to modern day missions. I don't particularly think that this is purposed for us to say, okay, this is the model for missionaries. Um, this is a particular event in the life of Jesus and his disciples. But the truth prevails and that the, 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 the lesson is rely on God, Right? Don't don't try to play God by planning out your future. Just depend on it. Make preparation, but don't worship the preparation. What we do is we often get in a position where we worship our preparation. And, and friends, I'm an OCD planner, so trust me, I'm preaching this to my own heart. I, I depend on my plan more than I do on the action, right? I, I depend on, on my preparation than I do on acting in the moment. And so we, he says, don't. The urgency demands that what you are to do, uh, or excuse me, what you are to bring uh, facilitates it. Then secondly, we see that, that what they are to say, he commands them what they are to say. In verse 10, he says, and he said to them, whenever you, excuse me, I said to say, it's how to act. So whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In essence, Jesus is saying, hey, when you go to town, don't look for the best accommodations. Don't be hopping around looking for the best and the, and the nice comfy. You know, you go there, you're like, ah, I'm going to that house. That's a big house. I, I bet you they have nice. He doesn't say that. He says, go and stay. 
Go into the town, find someone who will provide for you, and stay there until you depart. Don't be hopping around to different homes in the town. Then we see also that if a place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is that judgment day is going to be so bad for them. It's going to be so horrible for that town on the day of judgment because they've rejected me and my people that you don't even want one little bit of trace evidence on you from them. You don't want any dust clinging to you as kind of like a sign that you've been there. You don't want to smell on you that you've been hanging with those people. It's going to be so bad for them, it's best that you dust off yourself as a judgment against them. All of this speaks to the urgency and the need for the message to go out. In the midst of unbelief, Jesus says, judgment day is coming. The day of the Lord is at hand. Repent and believe. And we see that then in verse 12 into what they are to say. Where we get to that? What they are to say. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. People should repent. Now in Mark's gospel, the usage of repent is, is repent and believe. That's what Jesus has been preaching. Back in chapter 1 and verse 14, uh, Mark tells us, and Jesus came into, into Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel, and telling people that they should repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance and belief. Often we get uh, confused. Uh, what is repentance? Uh, repentance isn't just feeling bad for your sin. Although that's part of it. Repentance is turning from sin and towards God. It's saying, I know that my sin leads to death leads to, to chaos, leads to sadness and sorrow, and I'm turning from that towards God where there's life and happiness and flourishing. And so repentance is churning and trusting in Christ. And so when, when we use repent, we often want to combine it, uh, because the Bible does, uh, with belief or faith or trust. Right? All those are synonymous words the Bible uses. Uh, think about it this way, a coin. Repentance and belief are the flip sides of the same coin. They're the flip sides of the same coin. So when the Bible says repent, it assumes belief. Or when the Bible commands believe, it assumes repent and belief. All right, so it's a combo package. It doesn't, one doesn't, so repentance wasn't just for the nation of Israel. Right, as some have wrongly thought. Repentance was for all people to turn from their rebellious ways and trust in the sacrifice that Christ has provided on their behalf in his death and resurrection. That's the Christian gospel. That we have all sinned and therefore all are condemned eternally, save Jesus Christ in his death. So if Jesus had not came we all would be eternally condemned. But he has came. And he came and he died for our sins as a, as a substitute for, for all who would repent and trust in him. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, that is what I invite you to believe in. To turn from a life of sin and to trust in the glorious Savior who died on your behalf. 
If you want a relationship with God, that's what you came here for today. The only way to have a relationship with God is through Christ. By forsaking sin and clinging to Christ as more and greater and sweeter than sin will ever be. That's the glory of the gospel. And I invite you to believe that today. That is then what Jesus calls them. And we see then the evidence in verse 13 of the authority that that was given to them in their ability to cast out demons and anoint sick and heal them. The urgency of the mission demands. It's a few point of application. One, don't be discouraged when people are in unbelief. Don't be overwhelmed with discourage. Look to your Savior who endured unbelief. Jesus was a human just like you are. He was a man. 100%. He was fully God and fully man. He knew what it was like to feel sorrow and disappointment and pain and sadness. He wept, just like you weep. He was sad, just like you're sad. He was tempted, just like you are tempted. Tempted to doubt the promises of God. You should go to his temptation with the devil in Matthew chapter 4. That's what happened there. The devil is tempting him to not believe the promises of God. The promises of his father that he's known eternally. Satan is saying, don't believe your father. He's a liar. Jesus says, no, you're the liar. And you've been the liar since the beginning. Friends, that leads to a second point. Fight rigorously unbelief in your own heart. By putting faith in future grace. Friends, fight vigorously unbelief in your heart. Satan would have nothing greater for you than to doubt and to disbelieve the great promises of God in Christ. So how do we fight it? How do we fight unbelief? How do we fight doubt? By turning to God's promises and clinging to them. To seeing that God is a God who fulfills promises. God is a promise-keeping God. That's who He is. That's His nature. He made promises. He keeps them in Christ. And so we cling to those promises. We encourage one another. That's why we need fellowship with one another. To encourage one another. To say, fight! Don't give up! Don't quit! This is why we assemble together weekly. Because of the temptation to doubt, to unbelief. Friends, unbelief is not a surprise to someone who has walked away from God. Look, if you want to walk away from the assembly of God, from the assembly of God's people, you want to walk away from regular reading of God's word, I guarantee you what will happen. Unbelief will creep in. Doubt will creep in. You begin to not trust God's promises. 
third point of application. We must be urgent in our mission to share the gospel. Now is the time for us to recognize the urgency in the mission that God has given us in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. I reign supreme, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Friends, the urgency of the mission demands we share the gospel with you. And as Christians, as brothers and sisters, the urgency of the gospel mission demands that we don't quit when it looks like we're losing. That we press on in the name of Christ. Pleading and praying with our lost family members, with our lost friends, with our lost neighbors, and our lost community. And we plead the blood of Christ And we sing the songs in our hearts that nothing can wash away the blood. Nothing can wash away sin but the blood of Christ. And we hold on to that promise. We don't listen to the world as it says other things. We remind them that it is God's Word alone in Christ alone that we are saved. May we fight unbelief with the glory of the Gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the the word that you have given us this morning in Christ. Father, I just pray for this feeble preaching that it might bear fruit in our lives. I do pray that your spirit would attend the words that have been preached, that it would root out sin in my heart and in the hearts of your people. Oh God, I pray that we who all struggle at one level or point in unbelief, Father, that you would strengthen us with beautiful and lasting promises. That you would lavish upon us your grace afresh today. Anoint us with your spirit, I pray, that we might bear witness in our community to the power of the gospel to transform lives. For we are a testimony to the power of the gospel in Christ. We give you glory and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's sing, in conclusion today, a wonderful hymn. I want to sing it well, so let's sing it out. Grace greater than all our...